Welcome to the What's Up Docs podcast, the documentary podcast for all of us. I'm Tony Bell, the creator and host. Our next few episodes will showcase filmmakers and organizations based in what is now known as Chicago, which is located on the traditional unceded homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, and the Potawatomi Nations. Many other tribes, such as the Miami, Ho-Chunk, Menomi, Sac, and Fox, also call this area home. The region has long been a center for indigenous people to gather, trade, and maintain kinship ties. The What's Up With Docs podcast embraces our commitment to indigenous rights, racial justice, and cultural equity, not only through the statement, but also in our programming and relationships with indigenous communities. In this episode, I speak with Matt Lauterbach, Dr. Grishma Shaw and Rebecca Torres of All Census Go and the Real Abilities Film Festival. During our conversation, we chat about how their work with organizations and content creators ensures that media they support and create is accessible for all. The accessibility changes the team would like to become the norm as we move into a post-COVID world and how people with disabilities and their co-conspirators can work together effectively to make lasting, sustainable change that benefits us all. Because organizations like All Census Go and others disrupt the notion that those who are labeled not mainstream need to seek outside validation. This episode's song is Billie Eilish's self-acceptance and self-love anthem, My Future. Here is our conversation, which is recorded in April 2021. At the end of last year, Ronella and I got together. We had a brief little meeting and we um, went over our demographics for our guest. One of the reasons why we have folks fill out that very detailed intake form is because we want to make sure that we're tracking who we're inviting to the podcast, but also making sure that we're including like all voices. What came out with our demographics is like we are very well represented with the the Latinx community and uh, the LGBTQ community and our guests, but we wanted to have specifically have more Asian Americans, more African Americans, and then we really wanted to focus on folks with disabilities, not only to have an opportunity to discuss issues around like accessibility, um, not for film goers who have disabilities, but also filmmakers. Matt and I met last year through the company I do impact for um, Looky Looky Pictures, and then I asked them to be on the show. He invited you, Grishma, and Rebecca, and we're having a big old party. Grishma, I'm going to start with you. You are a filmmaker who has disabilities, but you're also an artist who has disabilities. So um, before we get into your filmmaking, I want to ask you about your your paint. I was actually just uh, showing, you know, the group here of a painting that I did during COVID. And I was still surprised that it, it took me a whole year to do that specific painting. But like every emotion that I had from, uh, you know, from the pandemic, I just kind of threw it onto the painting and it turned out pretty good, I think. It's called Worth. And especially during the pandemic, but even before then, I've been really uh, questioning, you know, how we find our worth as individuals, you know, as people within a specific ethnic community, you know, with all of the intersectionalities that we have. Mm-hmm. And it's so, I'm so engrossed in the concept of worth that I'm even now doing a dissertation, you know, with some parts of it. And I realized that we're conditioned in such a way that we may listen to one group of people more than others. Mm-hmm. And I think that I'm kind of in that group where I may say something, but my voice may fall on deaf ears. 
So for some reason, I found that I'm able to share what I'm feeling through art, especially painting. And more so than that, people are able to feel it. So I'm really grateful for art in that way that I'm like five feet tall, you know, I'm person with a disability. I'm a woman of color. You, you probably are not going to listen to me because of all of the conditionings that you've had. But if you look at my paintings, you know, you might be able to, you know, connect with me in a human level. And mm -hmm. we have more things in common than we do differences. So I think that's one of the reasons why I really gravitate towards painting and like filmmaking and storytelling. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes, particularly everything that's happened, I would say in the past 18 months, things can be very difficult to express with words. You know, sometimes the, the emotions of it are too deep. I have three master's degrees. So, you know, I got to ask about your dissertation. You know what, if someone had told me before, like, if you want to do a PhD, it might kill you. I think I would have <laughs> not done the PhD. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> But yeah, like I've got high blood pressure. I've got cholesterol. <laughs> my lipids are all over the place. I think the rumor is, is that because I'm so close to my dissertation, uh -huh. uh, you know, I'm having all these issues. But once I defend, like my, my health will go back to normal. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's exactly. true what they say, you know. Uh -huh. um, I asked a friend of mine who was in medical school not too long ago. I'm like, did you ever feel like you weren't going to be able to like finish? She goes, oh, it was dark. Like those are some dark times. <laughs> <laughs> but what is your dissertation about? Because you bring up the whole um, topic of worth. Yeah, for sure. So my dissertation uh, explores what it means to be desi, D-E-S-I, and it's kind of like a phenomenon. And depending on who you ask, you know, it could represent like all of the countries of South Asia, or it could be specific to like India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. But basically, it's like the, the participants that I had the opportunity to interview, they self-identified as desi. And then I would ask them, what mm -hmm. does it mean to be desi? How was life growing up as a desi? And how do you understand beauty and worth as a mm. desi and you know based on like religion and gender and skin tone and caste system mm. I feel uh, I'm able to explore different uh, you know facets of desi culture but yeah it's you know I got the permission to do like a non-traditional dissertation okay. which is even harder but I'm really <laughs> excited to share with you like the final product I think I'll be done in like a month oh go ahead you are at the finish line. Yeah, it's well, congratulations. Dark. <laughs> it's okay. very dark okay. over here. <laughs> <laughs> so you are you are definitely on the upswing, and so and you'll be Dr. Shaw in a, in a month. So yeah, congratulations. Yeah. Only um, like my dad has to call me that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'll call you that because you earned that. Thank you. So let's chat with you, Miss Rebecca Torres. You are founder and executive director of Backbone. So tell us about that. Yeah, Backbones is a nonprofit organization that uh, I started back in 2009 to help people with spinal cord injuries connect with their communities after their injury and um, after, you know, going through a very traumatic experience and trying to figure out what is next in life. And sometimes you know, that looks like finding resources for them locally or connecting them to a peer for support. And we also do a lot of events to get people out and meeting each other and having that connection in a social setting. So is this for people who have recently had spinal cord injuries? Not necessarily. Um, and actually, more often we get people get involved 
maybe two to five years after their injury, you know, right at the very beginning, people Mm -hmm. are sort of still figuring out what life is like, and sometimes still in denial that this is that they are a person with a disability. So it takes Mm -hmm. them a little bit to sort of wrap their mind around that. And um, often we'll get them reach out right at the beginning. And then we don't hear from them again for like two years, because Mm -hmm. that's when they're, that's when they're ready to, to actually explore what their life's going to be like as a person with disability. The organization was founded in 2009 and, you know, it was based off of my personal experience as a person with a spinal cord injury uh, Mm -hmm. being injured at the age of 13. I just want to talk to you about some of your work in the arts, particularly your uh, cartoon when Films Diverse Voices and Dots program fellow. This is kind of our first time where we've had a kind of a heavy Cartinquin crew. Lots of Cartinquin connections here. Talk about the Diverse Voices and Dots um, program, particularly for perspective of those who might be interested in applying. I have to really thank Matt for making me apply for that program years ago. I was working on a project with two women with spinal cord injuries, and we were recreating artwork of people with disabilities. Um, it ended up being over a five-year period, and I was also, you know, documenting that through film. Uh, Matt suggested, you know, you have all this stuff that you can work with. Why don't you apply for this? This is a program for filmmakers of color. And so I did, and not really expecting to become part of it, and then I, I did get it, and um, it was a really well. good experience. And- <laughs> It was a really great experience. And that was kind of the start of me really getting excited about film and Mm. um, seeing myself as someone who could tell a story through film. Currently, I'm working on a film about artists with disabilities and looking at artists from the past like Rita Kahlo, Vincent Van Gogh, and Henry Matisse, looking into their contributions to the art world and also Mm. contemporary artists and some of the barriers that we face as artists, but also celebrating our work and like what we are contributing to the art world. So Mr. Matt, um, so we met because uh, Looky Looky Pictures, we were in the process of planning all these virtual events and we had a brief call just kind of uh, so you could give us a general idea, the things we needed to do to make those events accessible. You are a filmmaker as well. Your background is in editing. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, for about probably the past decade, um, how I've been, you know, primarily earning my, my income. My interest in documentary actually began when I was a teacher. I was a high school mm-hmm. teacher. I was teaching um, history and psychology classes at okay. Curie Metro High School uh, mm-hmm. here in Chicago. I would use clips from documentaries in the classroom. I always found what I thought were fascinating documentaries with really interesting questions that were raised and would use them as a way to start dialogue and discussion and get the gears turning for my students. So for me, it was never, you know, plop the DVD in and play it for, you know, three classrooms in a row just to fill time. It was very much targeted and with a specific thing in mind. So one example was a film called Refrigerator Mothers. Earlier, you mentioned a Kartemquin connection. This was a Kartemquin Films 
production. Cartemquin is a production company here in Chicago that has, you know, a 50 plus year history mm-hmm. in creating really engaging social issue documentaries. It's founded by Gordon Quinn. Gordon Quinn uh, of, of the Cartem Quinn. Oh, and- I just got that. Yes, right? Oh, okay. I'm a little slow, but I get there. No worries. It's everyone asks about the name because it's okay. it's kind of a you know totally unique name and it's the combination of three different founders' uh, okay. last All names. Right. And so, you know, at the time I didn't know anything about documentary. I was just using it as a tool in my class. And so in psychology class, Refrigerator Mothers was a film about mm. parents, specifically mothers of children with autism. And It was a film about how psychiatrists at the time Mm. were blaming mothers for the autism of their child. The idea was mothers of children with autism were cold, like a refrigerator. Mm. They, Mm. They gave food, they would nourish, but they wouldn't nourish physically or you know, there, there was no warmth to them. And so that's why their child couldn't form, quote, human connections. And so it was a theory that was dominant in the 50s, 60s, that, that era. It did untold harm on the image mothers had of themselves. They were being told mm. by professional, you know, bespectacled men that they were the problem. And that, showing those clips in class, was really the best way that I could convey this part of of psychology's history because it was interviews with these women looking back from present day point of view on the past and the messages they were told and how they overcame and came to terms with the fact that no they are good mothers that's not something that a lecture could really bring out very well you you had to meet these mothers and see them and and hear them and you know see evidence of just how good parent they were. And so basically what happened was, you know, I'm a little more of an introvert. And so (laughs) I gradually realized that teaching was not for me. Aspects I loved about it, but I became really intrigued by the documentaries. And so I applied to be an intern. I had no filmmaking background, you know, after three summers of, of applying, finally got in, left teaching and just sort of, you know, winging a prayer kind of thing. Gates was like, I'm going to try this doc thing. Oh, wow. Um, that, talk about a leap of faith. One of my degrees is in visual anthropology and I always like to throw a little anthropology in there. So it makes me think about um, Clifford um, Garrett's theory of, of deep play. When someone goes into a particular cultural form, despite all logic. Okay. Yeah, So exactly. it can apply to a lot of things. So, you know, changing up careers, like people who are members of like clubs, you know, that type of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, it was definitely kind of a, a deep dive into filmmaking. Um, you know, the Cartemquin internship uh, comes highly recommended. You learn mm-hmm. a lot on the job, so to speak. And basically, you know, that's how I got into the world. I'm self-taught um, mm-hmm. and I began to edit films. First, I edited people's demos for free and eventually would get paid to do them and then expanded to full-length documentary. In the early phase of becoming a documentarian, I did produce a film that connects to to All Senses Go, the organization that three of us are a part of. So the the film was called Hearing Images, and it was about the Access Project at Victory Gardens Theater. This project is where I met Rebecca. So there was a, a writer's group. At the time, I was joining the writer's group out of college you know, I was looking for free opportunities. I didn't have much money, you know, (laughs) and oh, 
there's this interesting workshop at Victory Gardens Theater called the Access Writers Workshop. And it was super cool. It was totally free. It was explicitly open to writers, both with and without disabilities. Mm. And that's how you know, I kind of got to know Rebecca and and a lot of other really creative, interesting, fun people, both with and without disabilities. And I started to volunteer for that program. Besides the writer's workshop, they also did access for shows, for performances. And so they did this thing called a a pre-show touch tour for blind audiences, where before the show, you would invite anyone who was interested, who has low vision or is blind to hear descriptions of the set and the costumes and the actors and also get to touch tactily relevant mm-hmm. props and costumes and even come up on stage and explore the set tactily. Audio description ex- expounded. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 that's great. The mm-hmm. full described and tactile experience to kind mm-hmm. of set the stage for the actual performance so that a full visual and conceptual world has been built for blind audiences that they can now, you know, inhabit with the voices that they hear on stage during the play. And so that, I just found that very fascinating. And that was the subject of my first film. And over the years, that involvement with, you know, accessibility has just increased and we can get to how, you know, Yes. We, you know, we we three came together, but I think that's actually handing the storytelling off to, to Rebecca next. Rebecca, tell us how, um, like Matt said, the three of y'all got together. It started with uh, the Real Abilities Film Festival, actually. We, mm-hmm. um, I, through Backbones, we had developed a photography exhibit that I wanted to tour. And it was uh, 21 stories of people with spinal cord injuries told through photo essays. And so we launched that here in Chicago and I wanted it to tour. I contacted different organizations um, and Real Abilities was one of them. And they invited us to bring it out to their opening night in New York that year in 2014, I think it was. Can you tell folks about the Real Abilities Film Festival? And It's a film festival that shows films about disability or films made by uh, filmmakers with disabilities and um, Mm -hmm. to share the human experience of what of disability and so the headquarters are in New York they provide support to different cities to host organizations in different cities to hold their own real abilities Um, so if there's an organization they can they can um in another part of the country they can reach out say hey we want to do a version of the real abilities film festival can you help us? Yes. Okay. And that's what happened after this exhibit. <laughs> they said, can you do a Real Abilities Chicago? Like we love the work that you're doing and we think that it aligns with, mm-hmm. with our mission. And I said, no, I was like, I don't know anything. <laughs> you're like, no, nah, I don't oh. want to do that. <laughs> like, this, this sounds like a lot of work and I don't know anything about putting together a film festival. No, thanks. And they reached out again a couple of times until finally I was like, well, this does seem kind of cool. Maybe I'll consider it. (laughs) The only person I knew that was doing anything in film was Matt. I had, like you said, we met probably in 2005 or something through this class. You know, we had kept in touch over the years and I reached out to him and I was like, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. I don't know what I'm doing. Do you want to? try doing this with me and 
he said yes but this means I want you to like I remember telling you this I want you to be in a leadership role for this I don't want you to be a volunteer like help me do this and he agreed which I was so thankful for and we got started and um it's so funny because I just got a recently I just got a Facebook memory that I posted bite off more than you can chew and then chew it it was a quote from okay and I think (laughs) both both Matt and I were like what did we do (laughs) this is work but it's been awesome it's been awesome and then we met Grishma through UIC I'm Dr. Carrie Sandal who is a professor at, at the University of Illinois Chicago Carrie said you should talk to Grishma maybe she'll volunteer and help you guys and again I was like uh yeah you can volunteer but you could do more you know (laughs) so that's funny because uh you know Dr. Sundahl's like hey you know there I know you have like a a background in film festivals because I used to be a film programming manager for another film festival in Chicago Mm -hmm. and I'm like yeah yeah what's up and she's like yeah you know can you talk to them and, and help them out and I totally did think it was going to be, you know, like a like non-leadership, a yeah. you know, volunteering, <laughs> you know, kind of gig. And then they're like, we would like for you to be the third musketeer. And I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're very much, uh, you know, a trio. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think we, we became co-directors of, of Real Ability Chicago. And every other year until the pandemic hit, we have held a festival in Chicago. So 2015, 2017, and 2019. And we thought about adapting to the virtual world. But, you know, I think we've mutually agreed to wait because so much of what value we think the Chicago Real Abilities Festival brings mm-hmm. is in-person connections. We don't just show films we have gatherings afterwards. I feel like we've done some really creative post-screening activities that are that go beyond the you know the Q and A and actually get people mingling and talking to each other and meeting each other. We really do hope that come late 2021, early 22. We'll, yes, we'll... late 2021, 22. I'm I'm yeah. hoping for that to get out. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. That that we can you know return to that that in-person gathering that that just feels so nourishing. I want to just ask about more about the Real Abilities Film Festival, since it's a film festival that features work by filmmakers with disabilities uh, or films about folks with disabilities. This is more an accessibility question. Like, what are some of the on the ground things that you did to make that Real Abilities Film Festival accessible before the pandemic? And like, hopefully this discussion will continue. There were instances where for example at Sundance where you know there weren't ramps for people like for the talent to get on the stage to be able to talk about you know their films and like it no one had thought about you know someone has a wheelchair and they'll need to make that accessible for that particular person who's a director or producer what types of things did you do to make the on the ground experience um, accessible for folks with disabilities we have our own experiences with disability separately, you know, all three of us, but Mm -hmm. I think one of the key things that we did from the very beginning was to bring in people of a variety of different disabilities to our planning team. And like our core team was people that had different experiences than ourselves to make sure that that informed that we were thinking about all of the things that, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm a wheelchair user, so I don't know what a person who is deaf experiences um you know i can assume but i i don't want to do you, that, you don't want so. to assume exactly yeah yeah because <laughs> so, that, that's part of the problem people assuming 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that was key to that. That has always been key to to helping us make sure that we provide access. And with that, are you having community meetings like before the festival and like inviting folks to those to say, hey, what do you need? What do you think we might be missing? Yeah, we had um, all our we had planning meetings probably like monthly, almost about a year. Am I right? About a year prior to the festival. And then we asked people to just join us, whether we knew them personally or an open invitation as well to people that wanted to volunteer and participate. A lot of what we did for Real Abilities, you know, I I learned through the Access Project at at Victory Mm. Gardens, which I really want to credit as I think the, the thing that started accessibility in the arts and cultural sector here in Chicago. Really, Mm. Mike Irvin is a, um, you know, a writer and disability activist whose, you know, work goes way back. And he established this program at Victory Gardens. And really, it created a model for how to offer accessible events Mm. Mm. in venues. And so what that involves are things like live captioning of Mm -hmm. any conversation or dialogue. And so, you know, how do you caption, you know, the post-screening Q&A? Also, you show open captions for the film so that everyone in the audience, Mm -hmm. uh, anyone who's hard of hearing or deaf can follow along with open captions and there's no technology they have to deal with to figure it out. It's just there for everyone. And then post-screening Q&As, we bring in a cart transcriber. CART stands for Communication Access Real-Time Transcription. That basically involves, you know, someone who's trained as a court stenographer coming in with a special keyboard, a projector, and a screen so that they can real-time type the words that are being spoken on stage. And so we included that for any post-screening panels or speakers or discussions. Audio description during Mm -hmm. the film We worked with a wonderful audio describer here in Chicago named Victor Cole, who would basically sit in the back row with Mm -hmm. kind of a, you know, a stenographer's mask on to muffle his voice that had a microphone inside. And he would basically, Mm -hmm. you know, narrate what's happening visually during the film. In real time? Yes, in real time. Whoa, that's talented. Yeah. So he'd be watching the film right along with everyone else. But it's kind of like if you imagine, you know, a blind audience member and their sighted friend sitting next to them whispering in their ear. And so that microphone would broadcast a signal to anyone in the audience who wanted to hear the description. Mm-hmm. They'd, they'd wear mm-hmm. receiver headsets and they'd hear that voice whisper in their ear. She's opening the drawer and pulling out the gun. That's mm-hmm. all done silently. And so it needs to be described for people who can't see that action. And one thing I want to encourage folks um, who aren't blind or who have trouble seeing is go on to Netflix and find a film that has an audio description. And there are a lot more. And like, just go through that experience because it really enhances it and takes it to a whole other level. But also the people who do these audio descriptions, I think they're artists Anyway, you know, uh, or whoever at least writes the scripts for these, for the people who did audio descriptions, because it's done in such a way that really creates this incredible picture. Like sometimes I'll throw the audio description when I'm washing dishes, I'm not watching and I don't want to miss anything. <laughs> yeah, but it really brings a whole other level to the movie going experience that it doesn't take away. And th- I think there's like an art to that. Sometimes you actually catch little details that you wouldn't by catch visually, which I love. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't 
see didn't notice that before yeah I find that it actually gives me a better understanding of the story you know so a lot of people think that oh okay well I don't need that because you know I'm I, I have sight or I have hearing but I often have to tell them yeah but you know you're gonna the story just becomes more memorable right. and more full Mm-hmm. You know, when you're able to provide these kinds of tools. Cannot not talk about Crip Camp. Okay, I saw it at Sundance. I cried all the way through it. What I was, was the community um, advisor or leader. Okay. And so mm-hmm. what we did was folks that are part of the disability community that are doing work uh, around disability. We were part of that community. Mm-hmm. And what we did was we shared with our networks right. how amazing this film was. So to give you an example, um, I was Mm co-convener of the National Ability Summit, uh, which was an international virtual conference that was hosted by Varija Bajaj Mm -hmm. in India. I was working with her to bring in folks like Jim from Mm -hmm. Crip Camp and um, other folks like the co-founder of Real Abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, film festival in New York and what we were doing was trying to show like an international community the importance of disability accessibility Mm -hmm. especially in India but in other countries as well so you know I had folks from Harvard join I had folks from Crip Camp join you know among other folks and what we did was try to bring disability as more of a human experience. Because mm-hmm. in India, you know, if my statistics are right, disability statistics in India are less than 3%. And one of the reasons for that, I believe, is because of stigma. So you know, it's underreported. There could be many more factors, of course, but I do feel that stigma is one of the biggest factors. And um, it's also about the representation of disability, especially in media. In India, you know, we're huge on Bollywood cinema. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, if you look really closely, you're going to see that, you know, disability is thought of as a joke or Mm. as a curse or as, you know, like God is punishing you for something that you did in a past Mm. life. And these kinds of stories, as Matt was saying earlier, leave memories, you know, in our minds and in our heart. And I believe that they influence us so much as adults Mm -hmm. that, you know, um, it influences how we treat people, who we give respect to people, who we disrespect, who we Mm -hmm. hate. Um, you know, and we, it can even go as far as, you know, who we put a knee, you know, on a neck mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. So for those reasons, you know, we brought in that conference and we had like six um, countries, oh, you wow. know, okay. participating. Yeah, we had like the United States, we had the UK, we had, I want to say New Zealand or Australia, we had Canada, mm-hmm. we had Israel, you know, so it was an amazing experience. And, um, you know, we were able to bring Jim from there as well and, and talk about, you know, how disability is represented in film and right. what we need to do because we've got a lot of filmmakers in India, you know, and other countries that want to be able to, you know, do a film about disability, but, well, will it bring people into the audiences, you know, will mm. it sell tickets, you know, it gets really expensive if you don't have like, you know, like the, the Shah Rukh's you know, um, Mm -hmm. the world invested. So it was a great opportunity for us just to really talk openly about what we need to do in our own countries, but then also about allyship, as you said, you know, like Mm -hmm. co-conspirators, because I do feel like if we're able to do it together, 
we're going to yes. be able to really push the envelope on accessibility. So it was beautiful. Like I've ever since I was a little kid, you know, wanted to get two of my loves, Hollywood and Bollywood together. <laughs> and I was able to do that in a really cool way. With, oh, that's you know, awesome. Yeah. I think one gift that COVID brought that I could see from the industry side was I was doing a lot of filmmaker meetings at a lot of different festivals and events because everything was virtual, several filmmakers commented that actually this was probably the first time they were able to attend event like the, an event like this because normally they would not have been able to afford to travel. But mm -hmm. now this is a virtual world. So this is the first time they're getting um, access to all these like decision makers. But also it made me think about how COVID in a way just made the world recognize that we can accommodate. So we figured out that a lot of us can work from home when many of us were told like that is not the case. But also now, you know, when you do a virtual event, like AS, having ASL interpretation is like the norm and like it's odd if you don't see it, you know, being able to turn on captioning or live captioning is the norm. What are some of the things that you are hoping will stick around as we move back into the world and hopefully what will be a new normal. Well, I hope all these things stick around, you know, I hope mm -hmm. that just you saying that having ASL seems to be the norm, like that makes me so happy to hear that because I am, you know, I'm glad to see it, that it's common and that people are using it. And it's also, you know, this has brought a lot of access, like you said, people for transportation that may not have been able to get to an event or participating in planning an event or participating mm -hmm. in being on an advisory board because all of these things usually happen in person and maybe transportation isn't is an issue or you know if someone deals with pain or medical issues mm -hmm. that maybe they need to be in bed part of the day you know they can right. they have been able to participate um and I think it has also lent itself to uh, like a lot of mutual aid groups that have been able to help each other remotely as well, which has been a beautiful thing for me to see, you know, just people helping each other and like trying to figure things out regardless of the barriers or the obstacles to get people what they need. And Mm -hmm. um, I hope that this idea of flexibility that we are in compassion for each other continues. It, that's, you know, across the board, regardless of disability. I think, you know, everyone has realized that it, things don't have to be done a certain way to get done. I hope that continues. Grishma, what are some of the things that you would like to see stick around? You know, what was so beautiful about that conference was that we had folks with and without disabilities participate. And we had like over 50 panelists. And, you know, you mentioned ASL, right? So many countries have their own version of sign language. Yes. And so yes. we had this beautiful, you know, dual relationship where we had one, you know, American sign language interpreter, and then we mm -hmm. had one that was like an Indian sign language interpreter. Mm -hmm. And we were able to, you know, do some really beautiful communication, getting so many more wider audiences to be part of that impact. Right. And I think that's something that I really, really cherish. I really do hope that India continues doing that. I do believe that we were the first to be able to really push that envelope on accessibility mm -hmm. um, in India. But I think it's so great because as Rebecca said, you know, 
there's not just one way to do things. And for a really long time, we did think that. And now we're mm -hmm. realizing that there's a multitude of ways to get our community to get involved and, and really create the future that we really want for not just our kids, but our kids' kids. You know, I, I do see just kind of murmurings in Facebook and social media of people. It varies whether they're optimistic or pessimistic, but mm -hmm. just worried that when things start happening in person again, mm. that it'll go back to how it was and, and, right. and you know, and, and remote participation will just be sort of forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that the challenge that's going to face cultural workers in the coming months and years is uh, hopefully not years, hopefully it's solved sooner, but um, yes. <laughs> is hybrid events, you know? Yes. How do we hold an in-person event where there's an ASL interpreter on stage, but at the same time, you know, broadcast that in a way that individuals tuning in remotely are brought just as much into the participation as they have been in the past year. And that I think is going to be a logistical challenge. You know, I really hope organizations are starting to think about solutions mm -hmm. now, but that's kind of where I'm hoping that All Senses Go can be poised to help because what our mission really is, if an organization has the motivation to be mm -hmm. accessible, we would love to provide consultation and help in getting that organization to that point. We've learned through Real Abilities how to make in-person events accessible. You know, over the past year, we collaborated with Full Spectrum Features here in Chicago to bring two events that we called Access Reframed. We're sort of gaining fluency in both virtual and in person. Mm -hmm. And the next challenge is going to be that hybrid event. And so, yeah, that's kind of the goal of All Senses Go is to take what the three of us have learned on the job for real abilities. Anyone who sees that model and thinks, cool, I want to do that too. How? We can assist them. I did want to say that, uh, you know, with full spectrums, um, what we have in Chicago is an advisory team, which has about, I want to say 50-ish festivals that are collaborating together. So we, we have like the advisory team, which has, I want to say about 10 to 12 film festivals of Chicago. And then they bring resources to, you know, the, the 50. And what's really amazing is that when I'm having, you know, conversations about accessibility, it's so beautiful to know that mm. we are sharing these resources with the other 50 film festivals, you know, that are involved mm -hmm. with the Chicago Film Festival Symposium. And right. I feel like, as Matt is saying, there, there are these murmurs about, okay, we want to, you know, do hybrid, but we also want to have in-person events that are accessible. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that we're doing. Can you talk to us and tell us what we need to do more, where we need guidance, right. where we may be falling or what we're doing really well. And I don't think these conversations were happening like four years ago, three years ago. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm, so, mm -hmm. I'm so pleased to see that, you know, especially in the Chicagoland community, the film festivals are getting together and saying, yeah, we authentically want to mm -hmm. talk about inequities and, and try to figure out how we can make things accessible and equitable at the same time. I think that involves a certain amount of humility and, and courage because I feel like sometimes in maybe the film industry, but also in life, you know, people are 
they are not willing to like look back and evaluate and self-reflect on the situation. Like for me, I found that I've lived my best life by, okay, so I, I do something and I say, okay, what went well, you know, and articulate what went well so I can repeat that, but also like what didn't go well and like really look at like what didn't work. So I don't, don't repeat that. And it seems like in some organizations, there's this idea like, oh, that's being negative. Like, no, that's just like you trying to improve because there's always room for improvement. I love that more and more um, companies are in organizations are being willing to, to have that conversation. But also it, it allows for the space for mistakes to be made because, you know, you, you know, you're going to make mistakes because it's a learning process fixed mindset versus growth mindset, you know, and Carol Dweck does such a beautiful job telling us the difference between the two. If, if you think that the cards that you're dealt with are as far as you're going to go, and it's only a pair of tens, you know, and you're trying to tell the world that you have a flush while playing poker, it might be more on the fixed mindset side. But if you say, Mm -hmm. no, these are just like the cards that I'm dealt with, but this is like the beginning of my development. Right. You know, that's Mm -hmm. a growth mindset. Film Festival Alliance, we were approached by them in connection with full spectrum features. What they were engaged in was a leadership program where, you know, it was a kind of a professional development program for film festival leaders. Mm -hmm. And it involved a series of conversations with different stakeholders and, and different, you know, players in the film festival world. And so we spoke to that group. It was maybe six to eight, you know, people who, you know, we, we spoke to them about accessibility mm-hmm. and Grishma and I co-led that presentation where we really kind of laid out all the different things that you need to be on your radar in order to ensure that your festival is accessible to everyone. And so Grishma, I'll let you kind of talk about how you opened it. And then I, I can talk about, you know, the, the kind of activities we uh, discussed. So one of the things I really believe in is that we need to be able to have like a reaction to really make a difference in not only our lives, but in others' lives. Mm -hmm. So we did this activity called, what are you? And in this activity, I asked everyone to, um, you know, draw like, like eight circles and, and write down, you know, eight things about them, you know, like I'm a woman, I'm a person with a disability, I'm South Asian, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. And then I told them to cross five of them out. And and that was a little difficult, especially for me when I did this. Yeah. (laughs) And then I told them to cross all of it out except one bubble. And that one bubble would be your identifying, you know, characteristic for the Mm -hmm. entire world. And the point of it was to make it difficult because we are so many different identities mm-hmm. put together. There's a lot of intersectionality involved for every individual. So what if a film festival said to you, this identity that you kept, you know, um, you can't enter because we don't have the resources to accommodate mm. that identity. Mm. And then that's where Matt did this beautiful job of sharing with us how it actually feels to watch a movie without sound or without Mm -hmm. visuals. This is an activity that I've done actually with Kartemquin interns um, Mm -hmm. for for years now. It's not my idea. This was part of an audio description training that I took where the exercise is to listen to a five minute clip of a film without any visuals. And Mm -hmm. so you're just hearing it. And there may be a lot of sounds that you can't quite place like, because you can't see what's happening, mm-hmm. you don't know if that scraping sound, where's that coming from? There's a lot of things. And so 
basically the group listens to that clip and then we have a conversation about what do you think happened? What clues are you using to figure out what happened? What do you wish you knew? If anything could be clarified for you that would suddenly make you understand what's going on, mm-hmm. what would that be? And then we do, after discussing that, we listen to the clip one more time, this time with audio description. And now suddenly, oh, you know, certain things are clarified. That scraping sound was actually a police barricade being pulled across the street to block mm. someone using a wheelchair from, to, from getting across. And this is actually from, from a film, um, When Billy Broke His Head, uh, another Cartemquin-associated film. You know, this, this is what's happening is, is there's a protest, there's a police barricade. And the final wave is listening to this clip one last time, now with visuals. And the conversation then is, okay, what kinds of things did they not mention? A picture is worth a thousand words. And so there's a thousand things that could have been described. What was chosen to describe and why? Right. That often has to do with comprehension. You want to describe the things that are most essential to a non, you know, to a, to a blind or low vision uh, viewer to their understanding of the action. And so you may not get every detail. You may not get a full description of a person. You might get the one detail about them that's most important to the plot. Mm-hmm. So there's you know, conversations to be had there. And what really emerges from this exercise is two things. One, an understanding you said earlier, Tony, um, that audio description is an art form. There's a ton of creative decisions that you're making mm-hmm. uh, in order to really bring this story alive without visuals, but with description only. And then, you know, the second takeaway is, holy cow, I hadn't even thought about this before. Right, right. <laughs> is a lot of mm-hmm. time the, the reaction. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you mentioned your, your Netflix uh, exercise before of, of listening to it. I would challenge our listeners to try this exercise even before turning on the audio description, play five minutes of a film with no visuals, just turn your head away or just go in the other room, try to figure out how much you can follow, then try it with the audio description, et cetera. And it's a really uh, engaging and, and informative exercise that hopefully brings a greater awareness and, and a commitment to, oh, mm-hmm. I, sh- I should make this happen for my own film or during my own film festival. Rebecca, one thing I wanted to ask you about is when All Senses Go goes into a company or an organization to essentially evaluate their accessibility. After that report has been created, do you have any, are there like follow-up programs so you can go in and check to see you know, what they've done after six month period or after a year period? I mean, is that part of the, the packaging as well? I think it depends on the organization or the business or who we're working with and their needs. And, and I want to go back to something that you said earlier, where, mm-hmm. you know, you said that people are sometimes scared to, to say, you know, I'm, I'm not doing this right, or mm-hmm, I'm, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not providing these access things. And you know, one of the things that Matt has done really well when starting to work with a client is to say, like, there's these levels of accessibility. Mm. Like, you don't need to start with a hundred percent. You know, start right. with with ten percent. Start mm-hmm. somewhere, and it depends on you know who we're working with and what they're you know, their level of commitment is access, maybe their budget, maybe, you know, 
how big their staff is, what they're working on particularly. So it really, it really does depend, you know, on the follow-up and what their needs are. It is something where we try and tell them, you know, share this with them. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Mm-hmm. And, right. and, it, and it also is a lot of cultural thinking, you know, and values, trying to shift their mm-hmm. values to, to think about um, accessibility and inclusion in a way that becomes part of their cultural, their organizational culture or their business culture, that they're changing the way that they think and, and then interact with either customers or attendees or whatever maybe i forget the, who who says this but this somebody who says that budgets are moral documents that is something when i was like reviewing uh, applications you know consistently and constantly i would you know take detailed looks at the budgets particularly if there were um films that were in um set in under resourced communities or people who have been under resourced and i would look at look at things like for example their impact campaign you know if they had one you know that type of thing you know um if they were paying advisors or consultants you know and, and things like that who are part of the community um so what are some of the things that uh, film festivals and other like artist development organizations what are like some of the top things they should include in their budgets or should be thinking about including in their budgets when they're wanting to things like more accessible amazing that you say that because it uh, reminds me of the new rules that are going to be in place starting 2024 Mm. with the academy awards right Mm -hmm. right so if i recall correctly um if you want to qualify for a best picture category you need to be able to fulfill certain diversity requirements Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so that's actually the first thing that i tell my filmmaker friends and clients that you know i know that you're making this film and you know it would be beautiful for it to win an oscar right but you want to be cognizant of the fact that by the time you finish your film because Generally, a film can take two to four years, or it's, I was or longer. On a film that would take seven years. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you know, so you want to be able to plan ahead. And so if we do want this film to, you know, qualify for the Oscars, we need to make sure that in our budget, we have lined, you know, items for accessibility. But not just that, we want to hire a really diverse crew. Mm-hmm. You know, so that means that when we're looking at events, you know, for locations and tapings, we make sure that we find these locations that are truly accessible. Right. You know, so that's usually where I start, because mm-hmm. as Matt and Rebecca such beautifully stated, you don't want to overwhelm the person. You just want to share with them and guide with them that, hey, this is coming in 2024. So Get why ready. not think about it mm-hmm. ahead of time? Mm-hmm and plan for it in your budget. So you not only work with like folks in a documentary space, but you also work with folks in the narrative space as well. Correct, yeah, short okay. film plus, you know, um, mm-hmm. shorts and, and full features as well, yeah. Providing access is not a scary thing. It's It shouldn't be daunting, it shouldn't be unattainable. It just requires some creative thinking and problem solving. And if you're willing to do it, it's it's doable. And I'll just pitch all senses, go, we're here to help. You have a film, that film has a trailer. If your film is captioned, that trailer should be too. That's, if, if someone has gone to the trouble of captioning that trailer and not just letting YouTube auto-caption it, which can often be awful, 
and is not access, that's a good sign that, ah, you know, this filmmaker is thinking about it, you know, in all areas. The, the more deeply you think about access, the more widely it touches your filmmaking. And so you start to think about the accessibility of your marketing, of, you know, just every level of filmmaking. And so when you mention budgets, you start thinking about budgeting for accessibility right at the front instead of scrambling at the end. Right. Oh, we need captions in order to get into this film festival. I've already thought about that. And you're thinking about access in all areas, which is a little different than what Rebecca was saying about start small. But I, I think it's just a continuum. And as you're growing mm-hmm. with that growth mindset, you know, you're going to start expanding as well. I I said this a really long time ago. I'm going to make sure I say it today too. What do you get when you get the director of a non-for-profit, an editor, and a mass media consultant? You get all senses go. (laughs) That's the beginning of a joke, right? It is. It totally is. Yeah. Yeah. You you get into a bar, there's more dialogue, but another day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Grishma, Grishma made a fun joke in, uh, in the chat earlier on as well, where when we were talking about Kartemquin's name being three, uh, three oh, founders yeah. together, Grishma has proposed that All Senses Go change its name to Torbaka. Art is a means of connecting people to one another. And what better way to reach that goal than by striving for true accessibility? Grishma, Rebecca, and Matt encouraged those of us who are cultural workers to be courageous and to embrace a better future where accessibility is the norm. And as Rebecca says, providing access shouldn't be daunting or unattainable. It just requires some creative thinking. And if you're not sure about what exactly you need to do as a filmmaker or an organization, then All Census Go, AKA Torbacha, is ready to work with you. We'd like to offer a big congratulations to the new Dr. Grishma Shaw. You did that, girl. Thank you so much for listening today. In our next episode, we're staying in Chi-Town for a conversation with journalist and documentary filmmaker, Rosita Cox. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on all your podcast platforms. When you give us that five-star rating, it helps to make people more aware of our podcast. Visit our website at whatsupw.com. That's whatsupwdocs.com. And make sure to sign up for our mailing list to get the latest show news. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at whatsupwdocs. Again, that's whatsupwdocs. And remember, keep telling your stories. Today's episode was hosted by Tony Bell and produced by Renelle Schubert. Music was created by Sierra Thomas. The What's Up With Docs team would like to acknowledge the traditional, ancestral, unceded territory of the Shumash and Tongva on which we are recording this podcast. 